following is a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more information on Shaw or our teaching resources, visit www.shaw.org.nz. Well, good morning. I'm Reuben. I'm also one of the pastors here at Shaw. Good to see you. Um, let me add my welcome if you're a visitor today. Good to have you with us. Hope you feel at home. Hope you're just able to really enjoy and participate in, uh, in everything that's going on here. I uh, just want to mention before we dive into the message this morning, just a heads up on something that's coming down the track in three weeks' time. So 12th of February, we start our next major preaching series for the year, which is going to be on the book of Daniel. Daniel's one of the books in the Old Testament. And uh, we are going to be working our way chapter by chapter, section by section through Daniel uh, over uh, several months it'll take us to get through that book, but it's going to be a fun journey. I'm enjoying preparing for it and just kind of immersing myself in that book and getting to grips with it and starting to prepare towards that series. So a couple of things that you can do to get yourself ready for that series. One is that I'm pretty sure in your bulletin today it mentions that commentary that we're encouraging you to buy. We do this with, with most of the, the major book series that we do. Most of the time we work our way through a book of the Bible over the, the course of the year, and there's a great commentary series called The Bible for Everyone, and they've done commentaries on most of the books in the Bible. It's a very readable commentary, very accessible. There's not a lot of technical language or theological jargon. It's just a very good and easy read, and it just helps you get the most out of the series so that you can be reading about the passage before you come on Sunday and hear it preached. It'll just help you really engage with it. So order that commentary now. Book Depository, I think, is the cheapest place to get it. Uh, if you order it now, it'll take a couple of weeks to come through. So that's well worth getting. Uh, if you're in a life group, we'll do, uh, I'll do study sheets for that series. So each Friday, they'll be up online. You can grab those if you want to just do them in your own time or as a life group. Um, feel free to uh, do that. And then, of course, the other good thing is just to read the book of Daniel. Nothing like actually reading the Bible. And if you can, it's uh, 12 chapters long. If you can, read it in one sitting. It's always really good to do with a book of the Bible. We tend to just read a bit here and a bit there. But um, these books were always written to be read as a, as a whole, and it'll help you get the sense of the whole thing and the flow of it. So if you can put aside, I don't know, it might take you 45 minutes or so to read the whole thing. Uh, if you've been around church, if you've had a background in, in church, you'll probably find the first half of Daniel quite familiar and the second half completely bizarre which is part of the fun, and that's going to be part of the joy of the journey. So 12th of Feb, we kick into that, um, get yourself geared up for it, and um, engage with it in those, in those various ways. Okay, now, usually at Shaw on Sunday mornings, usually what we do, our standard approach to preaching is to take a passage of the Bible, and we unpack it, and we talk about what it meant in its original context, and we talk about what it means today in terms of contemporary application. I want to do something a little bit different this morning. That is, I don't want to talk from the Bible as such, or from a passage in the Bible. I want to talk about the Bible as a whole, as a whole thing, as a whole book. Because it seems to me that one of the problems people have um, particularly Christians, as they come to try and read the Bible. And maybe one of the reasons why people don't read the Bible very much, uh, and when they do read it, they don't read it very well, is because when you're reading a bit of the Bible, whether it's in your own personal devotional time or in your life group or wherever, when you're reading a Bible, and let's say you're in Ruth or you're in Psalms or you're in Matthew or you're in Second Thessalonians, we tend to read just isolated sections of the Bible. And we'll read a couple of verses or maybe a paragraph here and there, but people lack a sense of how the whole thing fits together uh, and how this passage 
connects to this passage over here or how this book connects and relates to this book over here. And because of that, we read in a very disconnected way and it prevents us from really getting the most out of the Bible. It prevents us from reading the Bible for all it's worth. We lose so much by reading the Bible that way. One of the most important things to grasp in approaching and reading and studying and meditating on the Bible is to grasp the overall storyline of Scripture, is to understand that the Bible contains one big story. It's a true story. I'm not talking, it's not fiction. It's not a myth. It's a true story. It's the truest of stories, but it is one story from beginning to end. It's a story that's inspired by God. That's why we call it God's word. It's, it's God's story before it's our story. This is God's story. But the Bible from Genesis to Revelation has one overarching storyline. The best thing you can do for your own study of the Word of God is to understand and immerse yourself in that big story that's going on. There's lots of little stories in the Bible, but there's one thread that weaves its way through the whole thing. So what I want to do this morning, quite simply, maybe ambitiously, is tell that story. I just want to tell the story of the Bible in about 30 minutes, right? It's never been done before. Uh, we've got the guy from the Guinness Book of Records down the back. He's going to see if we can get it done. Uh, the whole story of the Bible, Genesis to Revelation, in about 30 minutes, because I'm hoping that this will set us up for the year uh, in terms of locating the book of Daniel within the big story. I'm hoping it'll be helpful for your own reading and engagement with the Bible wherever and whenever that happens. So I just want to walk through the story with you. Sound okay? Should be fun. Let's see how we go. Uh, to try and give some shape to this, some structure to this, uh, I want you to think about the whole flow of the biblical story as a six-act play. Okay, so like a theater play that has six acts to it to give you the flow of the story. I'm going to talk about these six acts and work through them. Um, this is not original with me, this way of thinking about the Bible. Some of the words I'm going to use for these acts um, have been used before. So this is not, this is not my original stuff, but uh, just a way of thinking about the whole flow of the biblical story. Okay, so here we go. Let's dive in. So at the beginning, the first act of the biblical story is creation. Obvious enough, simple enough, creation. This act, this movement of the biblical story only takes up two chapters of the whole Bible, Genesis chapter 1, Genesis chapter 2, creation. And the Bible begins, of course, with those words, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God is a creative God. He speaks and He brings forth all that exists. He brings forth the cosmos, the universe. He creates planets, galaxies, solar systems. In the middle of it all, He creates this little speck called earth, and He pays particular attention to this little privileged planet, on earth, he separates land from sky, he separates land from water, he separates light from darkness, and then he populates the planet. He populates it with animal life, he populates it with plant life, and then as the pinnacle of his creation, he populates it with human life. God creates humanity as the pinnacle of his creation. In other creation myths or accounts, uh, human beings often have a very lowly role in the scheme of things. They kind of have this drudgery sort of serving the gods and doing their menial labor. But in the creation story that is the true story of Scripture, human beings are created with incredible dignity. They're created, the Bible says, with glory, with honor. We're created just a little lower than the angels. Human beings have this privileged existence in the biblical story. And the language that's used in Genesis 1 is that human beings are made in the image of God. 
And what that means, we're going to talk about the image of God a little bit more in detail next week. But what it means basically is that we are created with a unique set of relationships. We are created to relate to God uniquely and particularly. We are created to have a relationship, to have a personal connection with God. God didn't create the world and then walk away. He's not indifferent to us. He wants connection. He wants community with us. We are created for that connection. We're created for relationships with one another. We're created even for relationship with the physical world, the natural world that God has made. He's made us managers of it. He's made us stewards of it. He's made us caregivers of that world to tend it, to nurture it, to look after it and care for it. So God creates human beings in his image, and in the beginning, things are good. In fact, they're very good. God creates human beings, he says, very good. And there is this pristine kind of existence. In the first couple of chapters of the biblical story, as God walks with Adam and Eve, in the garden that he creates them in, in the cool of the day, and there's the sense of intimacy between God and humanity, humanity and one another. Things are working as they should be. Things are very good. That's the first movement. That's the first act. We've already covered two chapters of the Bible. This shouldn't take long. So the next act, act two, things take a terrible turn. As soon as you get to Genesis 3, this fantastic state of affairs does not last long because Genesis 3, you have the second act, which we'll call crisis. God gives human beings one rule and one rule only. Don't eat from the tree in the middle of the garden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Human beings disobey that commandment. They eat from this tree. They can't keep their hands off that fruit. And this changes everything. Effectively, what Adam and Eve do by eating that fruit from that tree is they try to turn their relationship with God on its head. Rather than them being made in God's image, they effectively try to remake God in their image, bring him down to their size and deal with him on their terms. Uh, Rather than their lives orbiting around God in this theocentric existence, Adam and Eve now want God, in effect, to orbit around them in an egocentric existence. That's what they're wanting. They don't want to become atheists. They don't stop believing in God. They still want him involved. They just want him involved on their terms. And that act of defiance, that act of disobedience and rebellion, it it changes everything. It ruptures the relationship between humanity and God. It severs that lifeline that Adam and Eve have between them and God, creates that fracturing. It creates a problem in the human heart. It leads to a damaged relationship with our own selves, with our own hearts. The first thing that happens after Adam and Eve eat the fruit is they feel shame. They realize they're naked. They feel shame. It's the first time shame enters the human experience. And then it ripples out, not only affects relationship with God, but sin affects relationship with self and relationship with others as well. The very next chapter of the biblical story, Genesis 4, story of Cain and Abel, first murder in Scripture, first homicide in the Bible, as one brother takes the life of another brother. And we see the problem of sin beginning to ripple out and have a larger and larger impact on human existence. By the time you get to Genesis 6, the story of Noah, there is this pervasive wickedness of humanity across, across the earth. People have just walked away from God. That relationship, that state of affairs that God had created in the beginning has been almost completely lost. And God brings judgment through the flood, preserving only a fraction of humanity, Noah and his family. And from them, then God begins to repopulate the earth. But that doesn't last long. You get to Genesis 11 and the story of the Tower of Babel. And once again, humanity has become wicked 
and depraved, and they try to prove themselves greater than God by building this tower to the heavens, this, this arrogant statement of human pride against God. And so again, God judges and scatters those working on the tower. It's the first time different languages are introduced to the human race. People are scattered across the earth. And so this is the chapter or the movement or the act called crisis from Genesis 3 to Genesis 11, you see this rippling effect of the way that sin has contaminated everything. Even creation is now working against humanity. Even the ground, even the land, everything's been thrown off course. Everything's been thrown off kilter. Sin is a cosmic problem, which leads us to Act 3, which we'll call Calling. It begins in Genesis 12, and, and really you could see the entirety of the rest of the biblical story as God's response to the problem of sin. This begins in Genesis 12. It begins in an obscure kind of way, with an obscure kind of guy, Abraham. This guy just seems very ordinary, uh, no particular significance to him as he's introduced in the biblical story, but God appears to this guy, Abraham, one night, one clear night. And God says, Abraham, can you count the stars in the sky? Because I'm going to give you so many descendants. Your family is going to be as numerous as the stars in the sky, as numerous as the sand on the seashore. God makes these extraordinary promises to Abraham. He says, this, this people, Abraham, that's going to come from you, this family that is going to come from you, I'm going to enter into a unique relationship with them. They will be my people. I will bind myself to them. I will covenant myself to this people. And through you, Abraham, all nations of the earth are going to be blessed. And God promises that he will give Abraham and his family this beautiful piece of land, very specific piece of land that we now know more or less as the state of Israel, this beautiful coastal strip of land on the Mediterranean. And God says, Abraham, you and your family. Abraham never saw the land as his own during his lifetime. He never claimed it. He got to walk it. He got to walk the length and the breadth of it, but he never had it. He didn't see much of the fulfillment of these promises during his own lifetime. But what he did have was a son. Abraham and Sarah had a son, Isaac. Isaac had a son, Jacob. Jacob had his name changed to Israel. Israel had 12 sons, and there is the 12 tribes of Israel. This is the beginning of the story of the nation of Israel. This is where it comes from comes from Abraham's family, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and the 12 sons, the 12 tribes. Now, Jacob and his sons, these, these 12 sons, they eventually move to the land of Egypt through the events that happen in the life of Joseph. The story of Joseph and the colored coat, that's the same Joseph, and through the events of his lifetime, eventually this family becomes resident in Egypt, Jacob and his sons. And then while in Egypt, they become incredibly numerous, incredibly populous, so much so that they become a threat to the powers that be in Egypt. They become a threat to the Pharaoh in Egypt. And he institutes a policy of slavery to try and keep these Israelites, as they're becoming known, under control. They've really moved from becoming just a big family to becoming a, a tribe on the verge of becoming a nation. And so they become a slave people. This is where the story of the Exodus comes in. God raises up Moses. Moses speaks to Pharaoh, let my people go. You know this story we did Exodus a few years ago, through the plagues that come upon Egypt, through the escape from Egypt, through the parting of the Red Sea, God leads his people out of Egypt. He leads them through the wilderness. He leads them toward this land, 
towards this land that he has promised to Abraham. And on the way to that land, he stops them at Mount Sinai. It's a very significant moment in the biblical story. They get to Mount Sinai, and this is where God gives them the law. God, at that point, enters into a covenant relationship with Israel. A covenant is kind of like a contract. It's just more personal. It's more weighty. It's more significant. God binds himself irrevocably to this people in a covenant relationship. But this covenant is a two-way street. God makes these promises to Israel, but he also expects something from them, and that is that they keep the law that God is instituting. The law begins with the Ten Commandments, but there's a lot more than just ten. There's 613. It begins with the Ten Commandments. They are the pillars of the law. But there's 613 commandments, and they regulate almost every aspect of Jewish life, particularly what life will and should be like once they get into the land. And what's important for understanding the story later on is that alongside all of these rules and instructions that God gives to Israel, He includes a set of blessings if you keep the law and a set of curses if you disobey the law. And God says, if, if you... If you are faithful to me. If you are faithful to the Lord, this is what's going to happen to you. But if you are unfaithful, if you walk away, this is what's going to happen. And most of the blessings and most of the curses revolve around the land. What's going to happen to them in the land? The land of Canaan, or the land of Israel, it functions as the fulcrum in God's relationship with Israel. So depending on how the relationship is going, determines whether the land is going to work for them or against them. In essence, God says, if you are faithful to me, the land will work for you. You'll be bountiful. You'll be prosperous. You'll have abundance in the land. You'll be able to stay in the land. If you disobey, if you are unfaithful, the land will work against you. You'll be conquered. Eventually, you'll be expelled from the land. So Israel carries on through the wilderness. Eventually, they come into the land. They conquer the, 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 the land of Canaan under the leadership of Joshua. Uh, they conquer most of it anyway. When the dust settles, you realize there's actually quite a few unconquered territories there, and this becomes part of the problem because as soon as Israel is in the land, they begin this descent, a spiritual descent, if you like, towards becoming just like the nations around them. They begin to absorb the practices of the other nations. They begin to absorb the religion of the other nations, the worship practices. At first, they just add them on to the worship of God, the worship of Yahweh, but pretty soon they just get absorbed into following the gods of the nations around them. This is the book of Judges. As these judges are raised up to lead and govern Israel, the steady decline of Israel just gets worse and worse because Israel just wants to be like the other nations. They don't want this singular allegiance to God, to Yahweh. They want to be like the people around them. And eventually that leads Israel to ask for a king. They want a king, not because they want good leadership, but because they want to be like the nations around them who have kings. That's the way other nations were set up. But God didn't set Israel up that way. He set it up as a theocracy with God as the sovereign, God as the king. But Israel says, no, we want a king. And eventually God gives them what they want. He gives them a king. The first king was King Saul, and then David, Solomon, and so on. And you can read the stories of the kings, particularly through the books of First and Second Kings. But as you read those books and you read the accounts of Israel as a monarchy through that period, you realize that the kings were more a part of the problem than the solution. There were certainly some bright spots among them, like King David, like Solomon to some degree, like King Josiah, like Asa, even though those guys 
had many, many flaws. They were among the brightest hopes for Israel. But time and time again, you read the accounts of this king and that king, and you're reading things like, this king did all the wicked stuff that his father did, and more. And this king just led Israel further and further into apostasy and rebellion. And this king didn't get rid of this evil practice or that evil practice. And this king did more evil than all the kings before him. And that you just get the sense like they are leading Israel down this path of depravity, this path of decline, this path towards total unfaithfulness towards God. And so God sends the prophets. He raises up these men of God called prophets. And when we think prophets, very often... We, we tend to think prophets are the guys that predict the distant future. And we think of them kind of, you know, talking about events that are far off uh, or talking about the end times and so on. But that is really a fraction of what the prophets did. When you think about the prophets, the best way to think about them is to think of them as covenant enforcers. What the prophets did most of the time is they called Israel's attention back to the covenant back to this agreement that God had with them in the beginning, and particularly back to the curses and the blessings that God had put in place, depending on Israel's obedience to the covenant. And the prophets spoke to Israel saying, remember God has said that if you disobey, if you continue on this path, if you continue on this track, what's going to happen to you is exactly what God said was going to happen to you back here. This judgment is coming. And they sometimes spelt it out in more detail. They sometimes spelt it out more specifically and with more clarity, but they are still reinforcing what God had already revealed through his law. And in particular, the prophet spoke this message of judgment that Israel, if you carry on the way you are, if you continue walking away from God rather than towards God, he is going to send judgment. There will be a judgment. There will be consequences. And the most severe judgment is, is that this land that you are residing in is going to spit you out. You'll be conquered. You'll be overrun. You'll be ejected from this land. But by and large, Israel didn't listen. Even though God sent prophet after prophet, and you can read their books in the Old Testament, Isaiah, uh, Nahum, Obadiah, Jeremiah, among others that prophesied, to Israel, calling them back to faithfulness. By and large, Israel did not listen. And so eventually, God sent the ultimate judgment that he had already promised to Israel, the judgment of exile. And in the early 7th century BC, the nation of Assyria came in and conquered the northern kingdom of Israel. Israel had split in two by this stage, Israel in the north, Judah in the south. Assyria came in, conquered Israel, and deported many of them off into exile, off back into Assyria. And then in 586 BC, the Babylonian army marched in, conquered Jerusalem, laid siege to Jerusalem, leveled the temple, destroyed the temple, carted off the best and brightest among Israel, among the, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, into exile and took them back to, to Babylonia. Now, this is where the story of Daniel comes in. And part of the reason I'm going through this now is so we don't have to spend too much time on it when we start that book series. But Daniel and his friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they were among the exiles, they were Judeans living in that southern kingdom of Israel who were taken off in one of the successive waves of exile, taken off into Babylon. And then the book of Daniel is set in exile in Babylon. We'll pick up that story later on. But the majority of Israelites eventually were deported. This is the way it happened in these days when you conquered a nation. The inhabitants were deported and they were taken to the land of the conqueror, the land of the oppressor. 
And that was kind of a way of inculcating them so that they couldn't really function as a separate nation anymore. They were just indoctrinated in the ways of the host nation. So Israel finds itself in the 6th century BC as a nation in exile, away from its land. And this was a huge tragedy in the life of Israel. Uh, Much more than just a physical kind of dislocation, this was a spiritual crisis. This was a spiritual tragedy because Israel's identity, its very identity, was tied to the land. Israel's relationship with God was tied to this land, quite specifically this mountain, Mount Zion, where God said, there I will place my name. There my presence will dwell. The temple, that's where God promised to reside. It's all very specifically geographic, and yet now Israel's been deported from the land, and they're in exile, which is why you find these Psalms saying, how can we sing the Lord's song in a strange land by the rivers of Babylon? They're in exile, you see, by the rivers of Babylon. We sat down and we wept. How can we sing the songs of Zion in a strange land? Israel's not even sure whether God's with her anymore. Is God still back here in Jerusalem? Is God with us in exile? And this is part of the story of Daniel that we discover as the story unfolds. God is still with his people, even in exile, even in another land, even in a strange foreign country. God's still there. God's still at work. And more than that, God begins making some more promises. And God, specifically through prophets like Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Daniel, start promising a hope beyond this exile. Start promising that beyond this judgment time, there is going to be restoration. There is going to be renewal. I will give you a hope and a future says God. You, you know that scripture from Jeremiah, some of you, 29.11, I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord, plans to give you a hope. And that's just not a nice little verse to memorize for your own life. That's a, a verse spoken to Israel as a nation in exile where God is saying to them, I know the plans I have for you to give you a hope beyond what you're experiencing now, a future beyond the present. I'm going to make a new covenant with you, says God, even better than the old one. And so it was that 70 years after Israel gets taken into exile, the political winds shift, the Persian Empire comes into power, Cyrus the king is established, and he has a new foreign policy which lets the Israelites go back. And so many of the Israelites that were deported, they get to go home. They get to come back to their homeland. Not all of them did. Many of them would have stayed. They would have just settled down and had families and so on in Babylon and would have remained there. But many did come back under leaders like Nehemiah, That's where that book comes in. Nehemiah leads a group of exiles home, specifically then undertakes the the rebuilding of the walls in Jerusalem to re-fortify. It was a destroyed city, and Nehemiah starts to to help the Israelites, rally the Israelites towards the rebuilding of the walls. You have the governor, Zerubbabel, who's instrumental in the rebuilding of the temple. Let's reconstruct the house of the Lord. And so the temple is rebuilt. Then you have Ezra comes along and rallies Israel and and brings about the spiritual renewal as he leads them back to the law and back to the covenant and back to reaffirming their faithfulness toward God. And so this is really the final scene in the Old Testament. This is the closing of this act called calling, is Israel's back in the land after the exile, and the walls are rebuilt, and the temple's rebuilt, and the feasts are starting again, and the sacrifices, and Israel again is a nation in her own home. But as the Old Testament finishes, there's this sense of anticlimax. 
There's the sense that Israel's back in its geographic home, but so many of the promises that were made, so many of what the prophets spoke of, these visions of Israel as a great nation, of the abundance and the prosperity and the dominance of Israel, so much of that had not come to pass. Yes, Israel was back in its land, but it was still an occupied people. It, it, it didn't have, except for a very, very short burst of time, it didn't have its own autonomy. It was under the boot of the Persian Empire and then the Greeks and then, worst of all, the Romans. It was still an occupied people. Yes, the temple was rebuilt, but it never again had the Shekinah glory of God descend and fill it like it did Solomon's temple. And yes, Israel had governors like Zerubbabel, but never again kings. And so there's the sense of what's happened and there began to emerge this new hope within Israel, this new expectation that maybe, even though we've experienced a physical return from exile, maybe there's a spiritual return that's yet to come. Maybe even though we're back in the land geographically, God has still got up his sleeve this great homecoming. Maybe we've returned to the land of Israel, but maybe God is yet to return to us. And so Israel began to expect this renewal this revival, this reawakening, like a new return from exile, like a whole new exodus. And this would be marked by the appearing of Messiah, God's anointed, God's chosen one who would come and lead Israel to throw off the bonds of their oppressors, throw off the shackles and reclaim their status as the great nation that God intended them to be. Now, this was the expectation that was in the air in the first century when Jesus enters the story. That's why I wanted to paint that picture because it's important for understanding so much of what Jesus says and does to know that he stepped into this scenario where people are expecting the true returning from exile is yet to come. And when's God going to do that? And how's it going to work? Jesus steps into that. See, Jesus, and by the way, we've just crossed over into the next act, Act 4, which is Christ. We sometimes think of Jesus as just kind of parachuting into history. As if he could have come at any time, he could have come at any place, it wouldn't really matter. He just dropped in, he died on the cross for our sins, went back to heaven, that's it. As long as he pays for our sins, we're good. But Jesus stepped into a story. This is what I want you to see. Jesus came into the flow of a story. He stepped into the flow of a story that had been going on for millennia before he came to earth. And that continued beyond him. And what Jesus does is he fulfills the story. He fulfills and brings to a climax the great story of Israel. As you're reading the Old Testament, you need to read it as something that points towards Jesus as its fulfillment. Everything in the Old Testament is one big signpost or many signposts pointing you towards Christ as the fulfillment. All of the law in some way or other points you towards Jesus. Jesus is the true law and the new lawgiver. He is the true Sabbath. He's the true rest. He says, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened. I will give you rest. He's the true sacrifice. No more sacrifice is needed. Jesus is the once for all sacrifice. Jesus even fulfills the promise of the land. He is, in a spiritual sense, the true land. He is the land in the Old Testament is spoken of as Israel's inheritance. In the New Testament, Jesus is spoken of as our inheritance. He is the land that we now inherit Christ fulfills all the main people, all the institutions, all the laws, the covenant. It all points towards Jesus as its culmination and its fulfillment.
But Jesus fulfills the Old Testament story in a unique and a surprising way. First words out of his mouth in his public ministry, he says, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is here or is near. And for Jewish people, they would have had an understanding of what the kingdom of heaven was based on what the prophets had said and how the prophets described God's kingdom. It was going to be that time when God reestablishes Israel as a military political superpower in the Middle East. And yet as Jesus' ministry unfolds, it becomes clear that's not what he's doing. He's not raising up a militia and charging the Romans. He's not recruiting an army. He's not becoming a zealot in a, in, a, in, a, in a military sense. But this kingdom that Jesus is bringing about is a kingdom of love. It's a kingdom of righteousness. It's a kingdom of peace, of shalom, God's shalom coming to earth. It's a peace. It's a kingdom of, of peace and grace, God's grace being poured out. It's a kingdom of sacrifice and self-giving love. It's a kingdom that looks like Jesus washing the feet of his disciples. This kingdom is very different. And it's not just a nationalistic kingdom for Israel either. That Jesus, time and again through his ministry, crosses over those cultural lines and he moves towards those outside of Israel and extends this offer of salvation and grace and compassion to them. He praises the faith of a Roman centurion, one of the most despised people in the minds of a Jew in the first century. He says, I have not seen faith like this in Israel. He engages a Samaritan woman in a conversation about worship. He casts demons out of a Gentile guy living in a Gentile land, part of the country. And Jesus is gathering in people from beyond Israel. He's gathering in people from different tribes, different tongues, different nations. Jesus is redefining the boundaries of who's in and who's out. Being part of God's people is no longer about being able to trace your bloodline back to Abraham. Jesus says, from these stones, I'll raise up descendants of Abraham. It's now about allegiance to Jesus. It's now about belonging to Jesus. And Jesus invites those of every tribe, every tongue, every nation to come to him and find true rest, find true peace, and find ultimately salvation. All this leads us to Jesus' death. And there's so much that could be said about the cross and the death of Christ. But again, we need to see it as the fulfillment of the story that has led up to it. Jesus takes upon himself the curse that Israel should have experienced, the covenant curse. In fact, Paul says, Jesus on the cross becomes a curse. He became a curse for us. He took upon himself the ultimate judgment of God, the ultimate exile in a sense. Jesus was the one on the cross who became abandoned by the Father, who became alienated from God, who became all that Israel should have been. He took that on himself. And not only a curse for Israel, but for all humanity, absorbing our sin, absorbing our brokenness, our rebellion, our idolatries, and our selfishness. Jesus dies to pay for that, absorbs it within his own body on the cross, and dies to cancel our indebtedness before God. And then on the third day, Jesus is raised physically, bodily, from the dead. He appears to many people over 40 days, and then he ascends back to heaven where he now is. Jesus is still alive in heaven, seated at the right hand of the Father. And from heaven then, Jesus pours out the promised Holy Spirit upon his followers. This is the fifth act in the story, the church. Jesus pours out the Spirit. This is the Jewish feast of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. Those who are followers of Jesus are filled with the abiding presence of the Holy Spirit. And the first thing that happens when these people are filled with the Spirit 
and they receive salvation is they form a community which becomes called the church. They form this community. And from the beginning, the church is, is doing the same things that we are doing this morning. It looks different in our day, in our culture, in our age, but the same things we are seeking to do today that the church was practicing and doing 2,000 years ago. We're gathering today to hear teaching. We're gathering today to worship. We're gathering to have fellowship, koinonia, with one another. We're, we're gathering to pray. We meet one another's needs. We are doing those same things. And the church, from its very beginning, had this mission impulse. It didn't just exist for itself. It had this orientation toward the world with this desire, with this calling and commissioning from Jesus to make disciples of all nations. And so Jesus' followers, the church, very much sent into the world to share the love of Jesus and to show the love of Jesus. And interestingly, through the first century or so of the church's existence, a lot of the time that happened through persecution. It happened because the church was attacked politically, socially, whatever, and it was scattered. Little groups of Jesus' followers ended up in other cities Firstly, around Israel, but then more broadly. And they took the word of God wherever they went. They took the gospel. And so new communities of Jesus' people start springing up. And then you have people like Paul, the Apostle Paul, who takes the gospel, the message of God's redeeming love, and he takes it even further beyond the Jewish homeland. He takes it out into the Greek world, the Greek-speaking Gentile world. And he plants little churches around these urban centers in the Mediterranean, across Turkey, across Greece, across Italy, probably got as far as Spain, and he takes the gospel further and further afield. Others come in his stead and have done the same right down to our day. Because this is the act that we're in now. This is important to see that you and I, we are still living in Act 5. That's where you are. The story's continuing. It's not finished yet. The Bible finished being written about the end of the first century AD. It was done and dusted. But the story of the Bible continues beyond that. The Bible doesn't just write about stuff that is present or past to its own day. The Bible also points forward. It points forward towards the, the age or the time in which we are now living. Jesus prays for all of his followers, all those who would ever know and love him, that they would be one, just as he and the Father are one. That's John 17. And we also have in Scripture hints and glimpses into the act that is yet to come the future act that is still future to our day, that final act of the six acts, which is called new creation. And that is the day that we still look forward to. Uh, I, I prayed about it before, that the day that Jesus appears again, that Scripture promises Christ will appear again, physically, bodily, upon this earth, not as a baby in a manger, but as a glorious king. And he will come and usher in a judgment. There will be a final judgment of all those who have ever lived. We will give account for our lives. And ultimately, the basis of that judgment, ultimately, is whether we belong to Jesus, whether we are saved by his love and by his grace or not. And those who do belong to Christ, those who are united to the death and resurrection of Jesus, will be ushered into this new creation. Now, I, I use that phrase, new creation, that may or may not be familiar to you, but it reflects a phrase that's used in the Bible a couple of times, which is the new heavens and the new earth. Isaiah uses that phrase. Uh, Revelation uses that phrase. I saw a new heavens and a new earth. That's the biblical picture. And, and in that usage of heavens, by the way, it's simply talking as it did in the beginning when God created the heavens and the earth about the physical heavens. We look up to the heavens, we look up to the sky, we look up to the stars. It's saying a new cosmos, 
a new universe. And the picture we have at the end of the biblical story, see, often the way that we picture it is we think at the end what's going to happen is that believers are all going to be taken away to heaven. Our heaven's very important because that's the present place where all believers go when they die. But it's not the end of the story. And this is where you need to read Revelation 21 and 22 so carefully and catch the flow of what's happening. Because what happens at the beginning of Revelation 21 is that the bride of Christ, the church, believers, comes down out of heaven. That's what it says. I saw the bride of Christ or the heavenly city, the new Jerusalem, dressed as a bride, come down out of heaven. And God's dwelling place is now among His people. You have this picture of God coming with all those believers who have been in heaven down now to the earth. And in a sense, heaven and earth are united now. Heaven is wherever God is. And God comes down with His people. And then the voice from the throne says, Behold, I am making everything new. I am making all things new. The sense that we get in Scripture is not that God is just simply in the end going to burn the earth and screw it up like a ripped bit of paper and throw it away, but that God is going to recreate the heavens and the earth, renew, redeem, and resurrect this present reality and bring about a new creation. Just as in the beginning, God created the world and said, this is good, this is very good. God is not giving up on His project. God is not giving up on that, but He will renew and He will reclaim and He will redeem. It's not that we are going to be resurrected away from this world. It's that we're going to be resurrected along with this earth. And we will inherit and we will inhabit this new creation, the new heavens and the new earth. And we'll dwell here with Father, Son, and Spirit for all eternity. And the image of God that we were created with in the beginning will then finally be renewed and finally be perfected. We will have then a perfect relationship with God, unbroken, without even the potential to sin. We'll have perfect relationship with self. Our hearts and our minds will work properly. We'll have perfect relationship with one another. Perfect human community and relationship. Shalom. And we'll even have perfect relationship with creation at last. Even the physical land renewed and redeemed. The image of God will be finally perfected in that new creation. And that day is yet to come. That's the substance. That's the essence of our Christian hope. So that's the story. That's the biblical story. It's a huge story. It's a vast story, but it's our story. And my hope is that knowing that story, and we've just done a whistle-top tour of the story. You can dive into it in so much more detail. But my hope is that knowing that story does a couple of things very quickly for you. One is that it will help you, whenever you read the Bible, to peg what you're reading to the bigger story. So that if you are reading Judges, or you're reading Nahum, or you're reading Mark, or you're reading Hebrews, you'll be able to ask the question, where does this fit? Maybe even ask yourself, which of those six acts does this fit into? Where am I? Where is this in the story? And that should help you get a sense of coherence, cohesion, and connect what you're reading to other books, other chapters, other parts of the biblical story. But even more than that, I don't want this to be for us just a distant kind of story that just is, dis is uh, disconnected from our lives. But my hope and prayer is that this becomes our story. This is our story. We're all living out of one story or another. The world gives us so many stories by which we can live. But this is our story. We are in it. And by God's grace and in the power of His Spirit, we are participating in moving this story forward. 
And so may we know the story deeply. May we immerse ourselves in the story. May we know, most of all, may we know the one who is at the, the center of the story, Jesus. It's his life, it's his death, it's his resurrection that really makes sense of the whole story. And may we continue to live out the story, have this as our narrative, our guiding story that shapes how we see the world, shapes how we see one another, shapes how we see ourselves and how we see God and how we see what he's doing on planet earth and shapes where we see everything heading so that we are oriented towards thy kingdom come and thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven because we believe one day that prayer is going to be answered. May we live that story out and may it be the story that makes sense in our lives and our church and our world. Let's pray. God, we want to thank you for the Bible. We want to thank you, God, that you, you've seen it fit to, to reveal yourself through the pages of this written book. And you didn't have to do that, God. There's so many ways you could have made yourself known and you have made yourself known through Jesus, through creation. But we want to thank you, Lord, this morning for the Bible, this book that we hold in our hands or have on our device or wherever it is. God, we thank you for it. We thank you for the way that it's been written by people, but with your sovereign hand, that it's been breathed by you, breathed out by you. Thank you for the way it's been preserved through history, for people who have made it their life's work to translate it and copy it, even at the expense of their lives sometimes. We thank you for those who have sacrificed enormously that we could have our own personal copies of the Bible today. We take it for granted, God. But we thank you, Lord, for bringing us this incredible book that we believe is your word. We thank you for the story that it contains, which witnesses to Jesus. And I want to pray this here, God, for myself, for all those gathered here, that would be, we would be people of your word, that we would be people of the book, that we would be people who can live up to our calling in Scripture to handle the word of God accurately. Father, we want to commit ourselves to regularly being in your word this year, to having that practice in our lives. We want to commit ourselves to reading it and reading it well. We want to commit ourselves to studying it. We want to commit ourselves to meditating upon it. And we pray that as we do that, God, that day by day and week by week, that we would meet you in the pages of your word, that our lives would be changed and we would be caught up into this incredible story of salvation that is still being outworked in the world. We thank you, God, and we give you praise. We give you our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. This has been a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more of our teaching resources, or to donate to our teaching resource ministry, or for more information on Shaw Community Church, visit www.shaw.org.nz. Alternatively, you can email office at shaw.org.nz or phone 09 415 0455. Thank you for listening.